not going to get into a big long introduction today and a lot of review today because I don't have time for all that. Uh, We've got to make it through five and six and although we made it through three chapters last week, there's more ground to cover this week. I announced in the little question time at the beginning that today is a PG-13 kind of message and it's not just today, it's today and next week as well. We're going to be having two PG-13 messages in a row. The problem is today's PG-13 is also PG-13 plus anger, and next week's PG-13 is PG-13 plus care and love. And so next week's a little softer. This week is the hard one, okay? And this one is the one where we have to dig into some stuff. And so I'm just going to give you a little bit of background information. First of all, we're calling the series Get It Together because this is Paul writing a letter to a church that was really messed up. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter that we call 1 Corinthians. It was the second or the third letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth, and they were so messed up that he had to continue writing them letters to try to get them back on track, to try to tell them to smack them upside the head, to get them to get it together. And they had two problems. One, they weren't living properly, and two, they weren't living in unity. They were divided with each other. And so Paul is just basically saying, it's time for you to get it together. And we're using that phrase in two ways. One, get your act together, and two, get your relationship together as people. And so Paul is writing this letter to basically smack them upside the head because they are messed up in so many ways, and you're going to see that today. But our uh, joy in reading 1 Corinthians is that we get to point our fingers at those people in Corinth and say, oh, look how messed up those people are. Of course, what you're going to determine today and what you'll see the whole letter is that the problems the people in Corinth had are the same problems that we have in our world today. And so, you know, we're just going to dig right on into it. And I'll remind you the three basic things that Paul has been trying to accomplish in this letter so far basically boils down to these three things. One, he wants the people in Corinth to get closely aligned with Jesus. He wants to turn their attention, their focus back to Jesus. And in order to do that, you know, they've been distracted. They've been paying attention to all kinds of latest philosophies and new thoughts and different competing leaders. And so they've been distracted from the core message of Jesus. And so Paul has to step in and just prove his authority. He takes the first quarter of the book, four chapters, to try to prove his authority over these people so that then he can push them to get back to Jesus. But if they're going to be focused on Jesus, that comes with two attendant requirements. One, they should be people of holiness. And two, they should be people of unity. So if they are focused on the central core message of Jesus, underneath that umbrella, they should be people of holiness and people of unity. And so Paul in this book is trying to tell them to focus on Jesus and to follow it up with holiness and unity. And so he's just finished basically setting up his authority. He's just finished telling them that he's in charge and they need to pay attention to him. And now he's ready to turn up the dial. He's ready to turn up the heat on this. And we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul is about to talk about two outlandish sins. Pick it up with me. Chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says this, It is actually reported... That there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? There are two sins that Paul is talking about here. 
I'm putting them under category of sin number one because they're linked with each other, but I'm going to mention them as two separate things. First of all, there is a sexually immoral man in the church. There is a sexually immoral man in the church. Now, look what Paul says about this. He says that this is a kind of sexual sin that even the pagans don't like. And remember, they're in Corinth, for crying out loud. Corinth is like the Las Vegas of its day. Corinth is every single kind of sexual deviance that exists in the world existed in Corinth. But this one, oh no. This was too gross for even the people in Corinth. And so Paul is like, and you're letting it happen in your church. There's a sexually immoral man in your church. Let's first ask a couple questions about this. What about the woman? Why doesn't Paul say anything about the woman? Well, we've got two guesses for why Paul doesn't say anything about the woman. One thing that we think is a reason is that maybe this woman wasn't a part of the church. And as you'll find out in just a little bit, Paul is talking specifically about a problem that is going on in the church. And so the, the woman, maybe she's not part of the church. But there's another reason. Maybe Paul just doesn't blame her. Maybe there's something else that's going on, and Paul isn't blaming this woman for being guilty in any way. I don't know exactly why. What we do know is that this woman is known by the church as the man's father's wife. Now, it's not his mom. Just in case you were getting super grossed out, it's not his own mom. And we know that it's not his mom because if it was his mom, Paul is trying to make a point that this is absolutely disgusting. And so if he's actually trying to make the point that this is absolutely disgusting and the guy really was sleeping with his own mom, Paul would have said, you're sleeping with your mom. That's where Paul would have done that. But no, he uses a phrase. He says specifically, father's wife. And this echoes an Old Testament command from the book of Leviticus, an Old Testament command where God had said through Moses to the people of Israel, he said to them that there are all kinds of sexual sins that I'm not going to put up with. And one of them was when someone slept with the same person that his father slept with. That was one of the guidelines, one of the rules, one of the laws in the Old Testament. And Paul is specifically referencing that. So it seems to be that this man who's sexually immoral is in that particular instance where he is now sleeping with someone that his father formerly slept with. Someone who was formerly his father's wife. Now you ask, what about the dad? Well, maybe the dad is dead. You know? Because if the dad were still alive, Paul probably would have said something along the lines of send the woman back to the man or something like that. He would have talked about the injustice to the man, but he doesn't talk about the injustice to the man. And so maybe the dad is actually not alive anymore. And once you begin to get there, there's a part of us that begins to think, well, maybe this isn't that bad. But we know Paul's disgusted by it. So then we have to reshape it. And we have to say, oh, no, 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 maybe this, is, maybe this is something that is really super gross. Maybe there's something else that's going on here. Maybe there's another problem along the lines here. But no. See, our problem is that we want to take something that Paul just identifies as sexual immorality, something that even the society around them doesn't really approve of, something that's just sexual immorality, and we know Paul hates it, we know he's disgusted by it, and so we have to pretend it's something super disgusting so that we also get disgusted by it. But no, Paul's just simply saying, this is a guy who's sleeping with someone. This is a guy who's sleeping with someone who's not his wife. This woman was supposed to be his dad's wife, not his wife. 
And so, you know, we come up with, well, maybe this is, maybe there's some explanations. Maybe there's some justifications. Maybe there's some other things that we can deal with. And I know that's what's happening in all of our hearts. We're trying to think of maybe this isn't really as bad as Paul thinks it is. Because for some reason, we tend to doubt Paul in the society that we have today where we are very much like the city of Corinth ourselves. But that's not the only problem. You see, Paul is saying, you guys have this in your midst. And the people of the city think it's gross. But you don't. More than that, they're proud of it. See, that's the, that's the second sin. Or the second half of the first sin. There's a sexually immoral man in the church and the church is proud of it. Now, how does that happen? How, how does something like that happen that the church would actually be proud of this situation? Well, I can think of a couple ways. One way, well, gee, Paul, what about grace? You know, doesn't God forgive sin? And so it doesn't really matter what sin a person does, God's grace can cover that sin. And maybe, maybe it's even one of these things where it's like God's grace is shown so amazingly because God can forgive any sin. His grace can cover any sin. And so even though this guy is doing something super egregious in the context of our society, and even though this guy is doing something gross to the, even the mindset, the mentality of the people in this church, we're going to say, praise God that grace covers even that. And that God can forgive even that. And that God's, we can even be proud of that in a weird sort of way because God's grace is revealed so amazingly. Look at us as people of God. We are recipients of such an amazing grace. Yeah, this guy is still, he's still living in that situation. But you know, God has already forgiven the fact that he married this woman or he took this other woman in. God's forgiven that. And now we can just rejoice in God's grace having covered this relationship too. Isn't God's grace so amazing? I can see that. Or, Paul, what about, what about freedom? Paul, aren't you the guy who came to our town to tell all of us Greeks that those Old Testament rules don't apply anymore? You know, the Old Testament rules that said men have to be circumcised in order to have a right relationship with God to be considered part of God's family? Paul, you're the one who told us we don't have to do that. You know those Old Testament commands that say you're not allowed to eat bacon or anything else that's not kosherly prepared and wholly prepared? Paul, you're the one who told us we can ignore those commands. We don't have to follow those commands anymore. So guess what, Paul? You're the one who taught us freedom. We're just celebrating our freedom. We're living in an environment, in a society now where we just get to so celebrate we are not not encumbered by the Old Testament laws anymore. Oh, and by the way, Paul, remember, we're also not burdened by the morality of the society around us either. Paul, we're not supposed to follow the morality of the Corinthians. Why would we need to follow the morality of the Corinthians? We are free. Haven't you taught us about freedom, Paul? Or, Paul, what about love? I mean, after all, who are you to tell two people who love each other what they can and cannot do? Paul, who are you to tell two people who are in love with, uh, how are you supposed to tell them what behaviors they're allowed to do? Come on, Paul. I mean, we live in a, we live in a mature society these days. Don't you know that consent is the only thing that matters? that two adults having consent for whatever it is that they're doing, if they are in love, then as long as you have adult consent, you are fine. Paul, haven't you ever heard of love? 
<laughs> have you ever heard of those excuses? Oh, yeah, sure you have. We're in church. We're church people. We've heard these excuses all the time. Some of the excuses come from the world around us. Some of these excuses come from right inside our own walls. But we say these excuses all the time. Paul, what about grace? Paul, what about freedom? What about love? And Paul is like, what are you, crazy? Kick him out. That's what Paul says. We are not outraged by this. We are not outraged like Paul is outraged. We are not you know how I know we are not outraged? I'll prove it to you. How many of you have seen this movie? Let's put it up on the screen. How many of you have seen this movie? Raise your hand. Let me know. Let me know. Be honest. How many of you have seen this movie? You recognize this movie from this scene. This is Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. I own this movie. I am telling you something about this movie right now that some of you remember, some of you don't remember, but I will tell you what this scene is. This scene is the first look on the face of each one of these men who are playing father and son in the movie when they discover that they have both slept with the same woman. That's the scene right there where Indiana Jones is like, you what? And the dad is like, you bet. And we laugh. And we think it's funny. And it's one of those scenes where you remember it and you're like, oh, yeah, that was just so hilarious when that absolutely egregious, terrible, horrible, no good thing that happened, happened. And we laugh. And we give him a pass. You know why? Because it's Sean Connery. I mean, come on. And it's Harrison Ford. I mean, come on. Indiana Jones. Yeah, we love that. But here's the deal. Paul is like, no, no, I want you to be sickened by this, I want you to be offended by this, I want you to recognize that sexual immorality, sure you can sugarcoat it however you want, sure you can put it in any sort of package you want, you can say anything you want to, but if it's in the church, there's a guy in your church and he is sexually immoral and everybody you know it, kick him out. That's what Paul says, absolutely kick him out out. We've only gone through two verses. He says, kick the guy out. Look at verse three. Paul says, for my part, even though I'm not physically present with, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you're assembled and I'm with you in spirit by the, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Paul is like, listen, the next time you get together, when you get together in the name of Jesus, and there's no reason for you to get together unless it's in the name of Jesus, but when you get together, the next time you get together in the name of Jesus, know that the spirit of God is present in your midst. 
And if the Spirit of God is present in your midst, then the same Spirit who's in me is also going to make it so that I'm with you in spirit because that Spirit is with you and I'm with you and I'm your authority and I have already cast judgment on this man. I have already determined he is guilty. I've already determined what must be done. I've already told you what must be done. So when you get together, the power of Jesus will be in your midst so you do it. Hand him over to Satan, is what he says. Why? To save his soul. Did you see that? Paul says, hand this man over to Satan so that the flesh can be destroyed, so the spirit can be saved. Now that is a, that is a weird thing to say. And it's very difficult for us to decipher. But I think our best clue for deciphering it actually comes outside of 1 Corinthians. I'm going to pop you over to 2 Timothy. And in 2 Timothy, what Paul is doing is he's writing a letter to Timothy, who's a young pastor. And Timothy's in a church context where there's some rebellious people. They're rebellious not in the sense that they're committing egregious sins. They're rebellious in the sense that they're rejecting Timothy's teaching. So Timothy has been teaching them about Jesus. He's been teaching them about God's will. And they've been resistant to it. And so Paul is writing a letter to Timothy, trying to tell Timothy what do you do with people who are rebelliously resistant to the teaching of God. And this is what Paul has to say. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will. And you look at that and you're like, wait a minute, Paul is telling Timothy to be gentle, to be kind, to be not quarrelsome, to be not argumentative. What is that, Paul? Are you being contradictory to us here? Are you telling the people in Corinth they're supposed to kick the man out, but you're telling Timothy, no, just be kind. You know, just be nurturing and gentle. No, there's something that you need to know. These two situations have one thing that is massively different, and they have one thing that's the same. The thing that's different is that over here, Paul is talking about a man who is in obvious sexual sin. Everybody knows it. And over here, Paul is talking about a person or group of people who are resistant to the teaching. And so Paul says what you do is you teach. You gently teach. You gently instruct. So Paul is actually creating a difference between these two kinds of sins. There's the sin of rebellion against the teacher, and then there's the sin of egregious sexual misconduct over here. And Paul is saying there's two different kinds of sins. In this case, kick him out. In this case, gently instruct. It's okay for us to recognize there are two different things. But there's one thing that's the same. Did you notice? In both of these passages, the devil's involved. Do you see that? See, the similarity is that in both of these cases, you have a person who's unrepentant, a person who's not willing to respond to leadership. And because of the nature of this person's sin, he's kicked out. But because of the nature of this person's sin, he is gently instructed. But in both cases, they are rebellious, and the cause is Satan. Paul says that Satan has got his grips on these people. He's got his claws in these people. 
And it's Satan's claws in these people that, is, that has caused them to be rebellious and not, represent, not uh, responsive to the, the leadership that has been offered to them. And Satan, is, Satan has got his grips on them. And in this case, you pray for the person. You gently instruct them. You say, maybe, maybe, maybe they will come to repentance, realize that Satan has grabbed them, and God will, God will pry Satan's grip away, and they will escape from his trap. But in this case over here, Satan's got his claws in that guy. He's got his claws in that guy, and he's, he's cramping it down. And you know what Paul says? He says, in this case, those things are different. The thing that's different is that you as the church, by giving this man a sense of comfort, by giving this man a sense of belonging, by giving this man a sense of he can be here, it's okay, you have given him life support when something has to die. That sin is the kind of sin where Satan's claws haven't just made a trap, they have dug in. And they've gotten in so deep that something in there needs to die. Some flesh needs to be destroyed. Something needs to be absolutely eliminated. And so Paul says, cast this man out so when he's out of the fellowship of the church, Satan has full sway. And he can get that cramped down all the way. And this guy will just go, we don't know if he's going to die or if Satan is just going to do torment. We don't know. Paul doesn't give us that level of information. But what we know is that Paul is saying Satan will just have his way and clamp down whatever he needs to do so that the thing that needs to die will die so that the spirit can live. See, this whole expression of excommunication is for the salvation of this guy's soul. That something is going to happen when he is outside of the life support of the church family network that the thing that needs to die can die. So that his soul, at the end of the times, will live. But that's not the only reason Paul says kick him out. The other reason Paul says kick him out is that you have to cleanse the church. You have to cleanse the church. Take a look at verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul is using a metaphor there about the ancient Israel practice of the Passover. And I don't have enough time today to explain the whole thing, but it just basically means when they did the Passover, they used unleavened bread to symbolize purity. And so Paul is now hoping that the Jewish people in Corinth will explain the metaphor to the Greek people in Corinth because Paul doesn't have enough time to explain it either. Instead, he just says, don't you know yeast spreads? And if you get a little bit of yeast in, it will spread. Oh, I hate bringing this up, but I think I should. How many of you have been following the news about the stuff that's been going on in the Catholic Church for like the last 30 years? Decades ago, maybe even centuries ago, sexual sin crept into the Catholic Church. And no one did anything about it. And that yeast started to spread. And then the reports came out about 10 years ago about how many priests had been abusing little children. And then the reports came out a couple months ago 
about how many priests in just one state in our nation were abusing children. And then the report came out just a few weeks ago of priests who had been sexually assaulting nuns. And the Vatican recently admitted that this is a problem that they need to address. And I'm telling you it's because there was a yeast in there that was allowed to spread. And it wasn't kicked out when it needed to be kicked out. And Paul is saying, if you allow that stuff in a church, it will spread. Oh, and by the way, you can't point your fingers at the Catholic Church either because the Protestant Church has just as bad of a history. It just so happens that the Catholic Church is a target, a big target. And the rest of us are so spread out that we can't be targeted as a group. But it's there. The guilt of sexual sin is rampant among us. And Paul says, you've got to cleanse the church because a little yeast will get all the way through. You know, we love when we can pass the buck, when we can blame others, when we can point our fingers at other people. And so what we do, it's too painful for us to look at ourselves. It's too painful for us to look at our church and, and to say, oh, well, maybe, maybe there's sexual sin around us. It's too painful for us to do that kind of stuff. And it's so much easier to just look at the world around us. It's so much easier for me to put a photo of a movie on the screen and point my fingers at the movie on the screen. I'm not going to put a photo of any of you on the screen. That would be perhaps wrong. But it's easy for me to point my finger at other things. It's easy for all of us to point our fingers at the outside world. And we do that so well as Christians. We do that so well. We see the problem. We say sexual sin is a problem. And so guess what? Let's just blame the world for how bad they are. Let's blame Hollywood. Take a look with me at verse 9, okay? Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Paul says, he, first of all, he includes sexual sin, but then he adds some other sins to it. Did you notice that? He added some other sins. Idolatry, that's one of the sins he adds to it. Guess what else he adds to it? Greed. Guess what else he adds to it? Slander. Have you ever wanted more than you deserved? Have you ever said something bad about someone who didn't deserve it? You're all guilty. We're all guilty. This is every one of us. Every single one of us. He says, if you claim to be a believer and you're guilty of those things, you're out. Shunned. No one should have a meal with you. No one should sit down with you, ever. But Jesus said, don't judge. Well, Paul echoes that. He's like, yeah, don't judge the people out there, but heck yeah, judge the people in here. God's going to judge them. 
but we got to clean the church. We got to remove the yeast. We got to take care of business. Now, I promise you that chapter 6 is going to go faster, but write this down to finish up chapter 5. Paul is saying this applies to continual sin in the church. It is not our job to point our fingers at the world around us. It is not our job to deal with the stuff in the world around us. It is not our job to blame the movie makers or to blame the actors. It is our job to look in the mirror and say, am I living the holy life I should be living? And are you living the holy life you should be living? And what do we need to do about it together? That's what he says. Okay, look with me at chapter 6, verse 1. He was just talking about judgment, and so he goes off on a judgment tangent a little bit, but it it fits, trust me. Verse 1, if any of you has a dispute with one another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? Not now, but someday. We will judge the world. And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers. But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Paul says, you've got another problem in your church. It's unresolved conflict. So the first sin, they had a sexually immoral man and they did nothing about it. The second sin, they have unresolved conflict in the church. Gee, doesn't it seem to make sense that the church that doesn't want to deal with the sinner also has unresolved conflict in it? They seem to go hand in hand. The church that doesn't want to deal with conflict is the church that can't deal with sin. You have unresolved conflict in your church. And he looks at them and he says, and so you've done this thing. You've even gone to to lawyers. You've even brought this thing before judges. People who don't even live the way you should live. Don't you know we will judge angels, he says. Well, what should they do? Did you notice what he said? He said, you've got two options. Option number one, they should submit to a council of wise Christians. They should submit to a council of wise Christians. That means there's got to be someone among you who's smart. I mean, just one. If you can find two, great. Find a couple people who are smart. Just set them down and say, now you get to be the counsel. You get to be the judges. You get to determine. And then you and your other brother, instead of standing before a court of law, you and your other brother or sister, you go to this counsel, you tell them your problems, they tell you their decision, and then, oh boy, you submit to it. Well, I don't know if I can submit to that. Paul is like, but that's the church. Those people know better than the people out there in the world. You submit to it. Well, you've got another option. I mean, if you don't want to submit, you do have another option. Your second option is this, to embrace the injustice. Paul says, why not be wronged? Why not, why not just let it happen? 
I mean, what, what's the big deal? And you say, oh, but Paul, I can't, I can't put up with injustice. I mean, I can't deal with someone sins against me. Someone looks at me funny, and I'm just supposed to let it happen. They rolled their eyes at me, and I'm just supposed to stand idly by and let them be such a jerk. Is that really what you're saying, Paul? Yeah. Well, I can't do that. I can't, I can't put up with injustice like that. I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm committed to the things that should be right need to be right. I'm committed to holiness in my life. And because I'm committed to holiness in my life, I'm going to nitpick you to the depths of your soul. Yeah, I'll judge you. I'll judge you for all the things you do that I don't like. That's not what Paul is saying, of course. Paul is saying... Why would you ever be unwilling to accept injustice against you? Have you forgotten about grace? Have you forgotten about Jesus' death for you? Have you forgotten about eternity? What's a couple years putting up with someone else's wrongdoing compared to eternity? What's a couple years submitting to a decision you don't agree with compared to eternity? Paul says, have you forgotten all this stuff? Look with me at verse 9. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? If that other person did something really, really, really wrong, you don't have to put up with them in eternity. God will take care of that. But keep going. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Again, he brings it back to sin number one. You know, the sexually immoral and the other egregious sins. He says, these people will never encounter the kingdom of God in verse 11. And that's what you were. That's what some of you were. But you were washed you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, that's the thing. Paul's like, Paul's like, you, you were guilty of all that. And God forgave you. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, Paul. Here's another contradiction. You just told us that the sexually immoral man has to be kicked out of the church. And now you're saying that all of us, we were sexually immoral and God let us come into the church. What is that all about? We were sexually immoral. We were greedy. We were swindlers. We were idolaters. And then God forgave that sin and brought us into the church. And now you're saying that when someone else is guilty of that sin, we're supposed to kick them out of the church? That doesn't make any sense. Are you serious, Paul? I mean, talk about hypocrisy. Then it's the people who have been forgiven of this sin who are sending this person out because of that sin. That doesn't make sense. And Paul's like, oh no, you're missing the point. Something happened to you. When you became a believer, when you, when you prayed that prayer, when you affirmed to God that he was your Lord, when you said, oh God, I'm no longer going to do things my way, that's been wrong. I confess to you that I've been a sinner and that I have, I have followed my own path when I should have been following you, but I haven't. But I believe that you sent your son to live on this earth a perfect life, to die in my place, to rise again, to prove victory over sin and death. 
And I want to receive that forgiveness and that cleansing. And so I give you my life the only possible way I know how, by receiving your son and giving you me in exchange. If you've ever done that, if that's been true for you, if that's the reality of your heart, something has changed. It was at that moment that God filled you up with his spirit. It was that moment that God linked you with the body of Christ, the family of believers. It was in that moment that God brought you into the church. See, you were out of the church. And then you came in to become part of the body, filled with the spirit. And that's why the sins that are egregious are so egregious. Keep reading with me. Verses 12 through 20. Paul now goes back into a little bit of sarcastic snark. He says, well, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. Well, I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. The point of that is that they're saying that God doesn't care about the physical things of this world. God doesn't care about the the stomach. He doesn't care about food. He just made the stomach to deal with food and you can enjoy whatever food you want. That's that's nothing that God cares about. God is going to destroy the physical world anyway. And one of these days we're just going to experience the spiritual world. So go ahead and indulge in whatever physical pleasures you want to indulge in because it doesn't matter. It's all going to be destroyed anyway. And Paul says, wait a minute. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know? that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body. For it's said the two will become one flesh. But whoever's united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Paul says everything changes when you become a believer. Everything changes When you become a believer, God links you in the body of Christ. He puts his spirit in you. And so then when you do a sin, it is the spirit dragged along with you into it, shaking his head the whole time. Oh, you deserve so much better, he would say to you. Oh, why do you put up with such temporary, fleeting, empty, hollow joy when there's so much better for you? The Holy Spirit of God is dragged with you into every one of those moments of slander, every one of those moments of greed, every one of those moments of sexual immorality. He is dragged with you into it. Because see, when God puts his spirit in you, he doesn't take it away. That's why the man handed over to Satan can still have his spirit be saved. When God puts his spirit in you, that spirit goes where you go, does what you do. How? How? terrible, 
how ludicrous, how crazy, how unthinkable, how inconceivable, how outlandish is it for us to take God into our sin? Not so with us. For us, it's going to be different. For us, those of us who would say, we have put our faith in Jesus, we have turned our lives over to him. For us, it is going to be different. For us, we will declare this. Continual, unrepentant sin is outlandish. It's a non-starter. It is absolutely not going to happen around here. We're going to say no. For us, continual, unrepentant sin is outlandish. Why? Precisely. Because you and I, because we are part of the body of Christ and filled with his spirit. Oh, I want with every fiber of my being for you to hear the judgment in these words. To hear the fact that outside of the church, these things are causes for eternal damnation. Inside the church, these things are causes of satanic torment. These are egregious, outlandish things. And I want you to embrace the judgment that God puts on such sin. But I also want you to hear the grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus who would adopt us into his family, who would bring us, who would make us part of his body, who would allow us to be his flesh on this earth, who would fill us with his spirit, who would say, I'm with you wherever you go, even when you go and do that. I will never leave you nor forsake you. My grace is sufficient for you, for in all things, he is able Listen, I want you to hear the judgment, but I want you to hear the grace. You are a member of the body of Christ. You are filled with his spirit. Let these things be outlandish for us. I want to ask you to take a few moments in prayer, just in silence, and to say to your heavenly Father, God, what do I think about these things? God, have I made excuses for these things? Have I allowed my soul to be infected by a, a yeast that has worked its way through me and is working its way through me through others? Thank you for listening to this message. We believe that God has a full and fulfilling life in store for you, and we want to help you live it. For videos, resources, and more, visit us online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com. And as always... We want to encourage you to plug into a Christ-following community of faith wherever you are. Life is a journey, and no one should ever walk alone.